Digging deeper into the day's top stories, you're listening to Jeff Andreas on 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Hello and welcome into the Jeff Andreas Show and thank you so much for tuning in here with me today on Radio NL. It is Monday, March the 30th and I hope you guys all had a great weekend. I know it might be tough for a lot of people who are just sitting at home watching the clock spin around in circles and I did kind of a lot of that this weekend myself but... Of course, with that comes a lot of television watching as well, and I'm sure a lot of people out there are doing the same thing. Um, I, like I am positive, many out there also did. Binged watch The Tiger King on the weekend. That was an interesting five or so hours of television. If you are uh, unfamiliar with what I'm talking about, well, just ask three of your friends what the heck the Tiger King is, and I am positive one of them will be well aware and uh, be able to fill you in on exactly what I'm talking about. But to give you a quick summary... It's about a gay man who owns a big cat zoo in Oklahoma. Some 200 tigers and lions at this zoo. Um, this guy got into it with some animal rights people over the course of several years and eventually decided to make a run for president. That was a publicity stunt, obviously, but he did it. He put out commercials. Joe Exotic is his name, and... Uh, He's a, he's a very large character. I'll just leave it at that. So I don't want to be delving into this any more than that, really, at this point. I just wanted to let you guys know that I'm, I'm well aware of what this Tiger King is and uh, that I have, in fact, seen it. So, anyways, let's get on to some actual important stuff here. So, on today's show, well, in the back half, I'm going to be chatting with former MLA for Yale Lillouette and, and former BC Transportation Minister Harry Lawley. Now, Harry and I are going to be talking about the need for more doctors here in this country, and particularly during a time when, of course, we are dealing with a pandemic. And one way to at least potentially fill in the gap a little bit could be to make more medical residency positions available for Canadians graduating with medical degrees from foreign universities and colleges. Now, I was reading a story over the weekend about a doctor who lives in Calgary. He recently had moved to Alberta in the fall of 2018 and began working part-time as an occupational health and safety advisor at Petland, he says he is now frustrated at not being able to serve on the front lines of the COVID-19 battle. He is from Nigeria, and his extensive academic credentials are not recognized in Canada, and his efforts to upgrade them have been sidetracked by the novel coronavirus. Now, this man says that, you know, he's had 10 years of medical experience, which includes ensuring the safety of physicians battling Ebola, dengue fever, and epidemics of cholera, chickenpox, and measles in southwestern Nigeria. So clearly, this guy has, has had some experience in dealing with, you know, viruses and, and diseases and what can come along with those. Now, he says that he needs to pass licensing exams to work as a family physician, but one of them was cancelled because of this virus. Now, this is not a unique position to be in, I don't believe. You know, the, from, from what I've gathered, some 1,000 members of the Alberta Association of International Medical Graduates are now stuck in the process as a result of COVID-19. I think we can all understand the, the need to be qualified, but in a case like this, with this Nigerian doctor saying that he could work as a physician's assistant or in another supervised support task role, um, that would fall short, of course, being an independent clinical doctor, uh, you know, that would be a position that he would be open to working in. And that would probably help some medical professionals out there who maybe are feeling a little bogged down and could use an extra hand. Um, 
It's just an interesting idea and, and something that has always kind of boggled my mind in a general sense. You know, I, I'm sure many people out there have had these same experiences when you jump in a cab somewhere and you talk to the driver and you find out, you know, they have a medical degree or a background as a veterinarian or, you know, all you can kind of do is shake your head at some of that stuff because, you know, someone who has a fairly unique skill set is doing something that really, in the end, is not very unique. Now, I'm not, you know, not putting down drivers, but let's let's be real. We're talking about drivers, people driving cars around versus um, medical doctors. Now, again, I want to stress that I do understand the need to be trained and qualified up to Canadian standards, but in a time of crisis or in a time of a pandemic, it seems a shame that there's not an ability for people with this type of training and ability and also, more importantly, really the desire to help those on the front lines that they are being limited. Now, that is, is something I think is just a little bit disheartening. So Harry and I will be speaking at around the 35-minute mark of today's show on that specific issue and why he thinks it's important to start giving these people, these uh, IMGs, if you will, uh, you know, they have the education. Now it's time to give them an opportunity to use that education here in Canada. And we're specifically talking about um, people who are Canadian, people who are from B.C., who have gone on to other universities in other country to get their medical degree and are now back in the country. So these are Canadian citizens. Um, and again, I, I understand, you know, they don't have the Canadian medical training, but they do have medical training. And I think in a time like this, it's not that important to be overly picky. Anyway, we'll get into all of this at around the 35-minute mark, and Harry, Lolly, and I will we'll chat more about that. Coming up next, though, I will be joined by my usual Monday guest, Kyla Lee. She is approaching her end date for being quarantined. She came back from Ohio on the 15th. So, of course, that mandatory 14-day isolation period kicked in. And then about five or six days in, she began feeling unwell, received a diagnosis via a virtual doctor that she probably had COVID-19, a presumptive case of COVID-19. And, uh, you know, now we can get an update on how she is feeling and also discuss a recent Supreme Court decision surrounding speeding as it relates to dangerous driving. So first and foremost, we'll get an update on her health and then we'll get into a little bit of chat surrounding something that's not necessarily COVID-19 related and talk about speeding as it relates to dangerous driving. Now, the reason we're going to be talking about this is uh, on Friday, there was a four to one decision made by the Supreme Court of Canada in the case of Ken Chung, whose silver Audi hit another vehicle in Vancouver in November 2015, killing the driver. Chung, who was driving at 140 kilometers an hour in a 50 kilometer an hour zone, was acquitted at trial of dangerous driving causing death. Over the span of a block, Chung had moved into this curbside lane, passed at least one car, and accelerated quickly before entering the intersection. And the trial judge found that Chung was neither inattentive nor driving dangerously prior to this one-block span. So the judge ruled Chung's speeding was only momentary and therefore amounted to a lapse of judgment rather than a significant departure from the standard of a reasonably prudent driver. Get all that? Now, British Columbia's appeal court overturned that decision and entered a conviction prompting Chung to take his case to the Supreme Court. Now, in its decision Friday, the high court said the trial judge's fixation on the momentary nature of the speeding was an error of law. A judge wrote that Chung's actions were not comparable to momentary mistakes that might be made by any reasonable driver, such as mistimed turn onto a highway or the sudden loss of awareness or control. A reasonable person would have foreseen the immediate risk of reaching a speed almost three times the speed limit while accelerating towards a major city intersection. Now, Kyla and I will be discussing this case, as she says, 
This decision opens the door to more people who would otherwise be ticketed for speeding and then getting a criminal charge instead. Normally, normally Kyla and I are pretty much on the same page. Not so sure on this one. So that conversation is coming up next, and perhaps we have a little bit of time left over at the end. We can get into a little bit more about COVID-19, right? Because we don't talk enough about that. Um, you know, we have seen other countries start implementing a curfew. Could that be something that would come to Canada? Uh, how would that be enforced if it were to get there? If we have some time at the end, we'll chat maybe about that a little bit as well. So let's take a quick break, and I'll be back with more Jeff Andrea Show after this. Acting with Laws, Kyla Lee, will be joining me, so stay tuned. Uh, we're just going to take a quick break, and we'll be back with more Jeff Andrea Show. <laughs> Digging deeper into the day's top stories, you're listening to Jeff Andreas on 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Welcome back into the Jeff Andreas Show here on Monday, March the 30th. I'm joined on the phone now by my usual Monday guest, Acumen Laws, Kyla Lee. Kyla, how are you doing here today? I'm good, thank you. Good morning. Thank you for having me. <laughs> yeah, how, how are you feeling these days? I know when we talked, you know, last week there was concerns around whether you could make it through a segment without coughing, and you did it last week, but I'm just wondering, you know, a week <laughs> removed from that, how you doing now? Um, I'm on the upswing. The cough is getting worse, but it's but the rest of all the symptoms are better, so I'm okay with that. <laughs> all right, well, well. Just uh, keep hoping that you continue to feel better, and, uh, yeah, those symptoms will eventually go away, so you can eventually get out of your house, because what are you on, like, day 16 of quarantine now? i got to be imagining you're driving yourself a little bit crazy at this point. Yep, a little bit, but <laughs> thankfully I have a lot of work to keep me busy. <laughs> Perfect, and hopefully chats like this are helping you as, as well. Um, so we did want to talk a little bit about something that wasn't totally COVID-19 related, so I wanted to start with that because... Uh, well, I just wanted to get off that subject for a little bit. So um, there was this case uh, by the Supreme Court. Um, basically, it was relates to uh, Ken Chung in uh, in Vancouver. He was driving 140 in a 50 kilometer an hour zone. I believe this was in 2015. Uh, he ended up killing a driver, and uh, you know, initially he was acquitted of the dangerous driving charge that was handed to him as a result. But the Supreme Court uh, eventually took on the case and said, no, that that dangerous driving charge should be upheld. So just initial thoughts on that decision by the Supreme Court. Well, um, it's a really interesting decision because it's the first time we've seen an explicit uh, statement by the Supreme Court of Canada that that excessive speeding on its own, even just for a moment, can amount to dangerous driving. And that really changes the landscape for drivers in British Columbia, um, especially up in uh, in and around Kamloops and uh, on the highways up there where people are often going well in excess of the speed limit because they feel comfortable with those roadways and feel like they've got kind of a pass to do it. So with that in mind, though, I mean, you know, I guess what what are your major concerns with with that? being upheld, with the dangerous driving charge being upheld in this particular case. I mean, I guess the, the precedent would be set as a result of this, but, um, you know, wouldn't this particular case be a little bit unique in the fact that the driver that he, the other driver that he hit, you know, did, did die as a result of that collision? So shouldn't that, uh, you know, maybe be taken into account when you're talking about this specific decision? And, you know, it's not just about speeding, but it's also about an injury as well? You would think that, but in fact, the way that the law works on dangerous driving charges is it doesn't look at the consequences of your driving, because you can drive like a complete maniac for miles and miles and miles and not cause anybody death, but you can put the public at serious risk. 
So what dangerous driving looks at is whether your conduct is a marked departure from the standard of a reasonably prudent driver. And it doesn't matter whether you have extensive consequences as a result of your driving or no consequences whatsoever as a result of your driving. It's about the manner of the driving only. So could you maybe... Take me through this just, uh, you know, just I want you to kind of break it down for me a little bit more just so I can get a real good sense of, of why this is a concern to you. So, um, you know, you say the, the, the results of your driving or the, the actions that your driving results in are not necessarily taken into account. So can you give me a case where this precedent that is set as a result of this uh, Ken Chung incident, why, um, you know, why that could have a, a negative impact on someone who, who is just speeding and, you know, isn't necessarily driving that crazy, but maybe their, their foot got a little heavy in a, in a, in a moment. And, um, you know, what, what kinds of consequences could result uh, from this precedent here? Well, the result is that anybody who would ordinarily be charged with excessive speeding, so just getting a ticket, getting their car impounded for seven days, and potentially going to traffic court if they want to dispute it, is now potentially liable for a dangerous driving charge. And the power to make that decision about whether you're being charged criminally or whether you're just going to get a traffic ticket is in the hands of the police officer at the roadside. It's what they decide to do in that moment. Um, and I deal with clients all the time who are pulled over, who have been you know, going well and above the speed limit and who say the police officer's yelling at me and they say that I could kill somebody and I'm scared what's going to happen. And it used to be, well, you're going to get a ticket and it's going to be okay. You know, the worst is going to happen to you. But now these people are facing the potential of a criminal record on the basis of that driving. So it changes the landscape completely for advising people as well as the consequences that people might face when they encounter a police officer. So essentially, I guess, for, from what I gather from that is, you know, there's more of a concern that officers might be more willing to hand out a dangerous driving ticket or a dangerous driving charge to an individual um, than they might have been prior to this. It just makes them a little bit more maybe willing to give out some kind of charge in that regard because it's more likely to stick, I guess, now. Yes, and then, of course, for the person who's facing that charge, they have greater jeopardy, the potential of a criminal record. If they're convicted, it's a one-year driving prohibition minimum uh, that they're going to be receiving. Um, the potential for very high fines, you know, in, in two or $3,000 range is not uncommon. Um, and having to navigate through the court system, which is expensive and time-consuming. Whereas if you get a ticket, you pay your ticket and you go on, or you just do your ticket and you go to your court date. It's not multiple court appearances and a trial and all of the costs associated with that. And this, of course, costs taxpayers, too, because every case that's not dealt with as a ticket but instead dealt with as a trial and a criminal matter means more money is spent for a prosecutor, for a sheriff, for a judge, for all of the resources necessary to run a matter through the court system. Um, I guess, do you have, um, you don't have to have specific examples, but, you know, just where other incidents or other charges like this would become precedent-setting and then it does make officers maybe a little more trigger-happy when trying to, you know, decide what charges to lay out? I mean, is that something that you see very often when you're looking at an extreme charge like this when we're talking about dangerous driving versus a speeding ticket? Obviously, um, almost apples and oranges when talking about a comparison. Uh, do, do you see a lot of cases where when this precedent-setting case is put out by the Supreme Court, uh, do you see officers often getting a little bit more trigger happy on those other offenses and say, well, you know, I, even if I don't believe this is necessarily warranted, I'll, I'll just lay the charge and then you can kind of deal with it in the court system. Do, do you see those kinds of uh, trends happening quite frequently? 
I do. In fact, when the Court of Appeal released their judgment, which the Supreme Court of Canada confirmed in this case, um, a lot of police officers came to me at that time and said, this is great. Now I can charge people criminally. And they were happy about this and they were excited to be able to use that power. Um, and you know, each time I see somebody who's excited to use the power to make things worse for another person, of course, I am concerned. Um, that might not be their motivation, but it does, you know, it does empower police officers to make the most life altering decision they can make when dealing with somebody somebody, even if that's not necessarily appropriate. It also blurs the lines between when you're supposed to go with a motor vehicle act charge for excessive speeding as opposed to dangerous driving. What is the, you know, we now have no direction for what the decision-making point is. It's just if the speed is excessive, you can go criminal. That gives the public no certainty about what they're facing, um, which makes any interaction you have with a police officer in the context of speeding um, something where they're more vulnerable. Yeah, well, uh, I guess, you know, once, once the president has said, it's just uh, up to those uh, issuing those tickets to decide how far they want to take them. Uh, anything else that you wanted to add on that specific subject here, Kyla, before we kind of shift gears? We only have a, a little bit of time left, but figured I'd give you one chance to, um, you know, if there was anything else on that particular Ken Chung case that you wanted to, to add. Well, if you get any type of uh, of ticket or charge for driving at an excessive speed, it's always important to take it seriously because the consequences either way are very significant. All right. And I did want to ask this. It was sort of a follow-up to what we talked about last week when we were, we were asking about, you know, what happens if, if someone is found to be breaking uh, their quarantine rules and you don't want to send them to prison because you don't want to have someone who is a positive COVID-19 case put into the system. And the reason I'm asking this is because uh, last week there was a case, I believe it was out of uh, Nova Scotia, um, where a woman who had been feeling unwell and I believe had a presumptive case, maybe it was even positive, I honestly can't remember off the top of my head, but she was arrested uh, and basically sent home, and then the next day she was arrested again. I mean, how can we deal with people who are going out and doing this kind of stuff? Uh, clearly an arrest was not enough of a deterrent for this particular woman, and, and like I said, we talked a little bit about this last week. So just how do you, how do you think we can deal with people who might be you know, going out when they shouldn't be? I think that really that's where things call on us to get creative because the answer is not putting them in jail and denying them bail while they're facing the charges for violating the quarantine act or anything like that. Um, that answer is not satisfactory because it exposes a vulnerable population. It exposes corrections workers. Um, so we have to get creative with bail conditions and, and the criminal code and, and federal legislation and even provincial legislation um, allow for the imposition of all sorts of different types of bail conditions including potential for things like electronic monitoring, which we see, of course, with the Huawei case. Um, that electronic monitoring is still, is still going on. Things like that can be used. Um, they can uh, they can monitor her physically by posting a, a police officer at her door, although that would be kind of a waste of resources. Mm-hmm. Um, there's uh, requirements that she would have to check in with a uh, with a bail supervisor by telephone, even up to multiple times a day. Present herself at the door of her residence when uh, a police officer knocks at the door, and they can just send officers periodically to check on her. Those are all sort of conditions we see commonly in bail orders for people who've had multiple breaches. And so the same types of orders that protect the public as well as keep somebody out of jail are the types that we should be employing in these types of circumstances. Yeah, well, I hope we don't have to deal with too many of these cases, but clearly they are happening. So uh, it's just one thing that uh, we'll have to be paying attention to and see how uh, the law enforcement is able to handle it. But thank you so much, Kyle. Always appreciate your time. Love talking to you, and we'll do it again next week. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Awesome. That was Acumen Laws. Hi, Lily.
All right, coming up, I'm going to be talking a little bit about medical doctors who are, you know, Canadian, but maybe got their MDs from out of country. We'll be chatting more about that after the break, so please stick around. The voice of your community, Radio NL 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Here's Jeff Andreas. Welcome back to the Jeff Andreas Show. Thanks so much for tuning in here with me on Monday. A lack of medical residency positions made available for Canadians graduating with medical degrees from foreign universities and colleges is being brought forward by one former B.C. politician. Uh, International medical graduates, or IMGs, if you will, are being passed over in favor of Canadian students completing their MDs domestically or also in favor of foreign nationals who receive medical degrees from foreign countries. Here now to talk a little bit about his concerns with this practice is former MLA for Yale Lillouette and former BC Transportation Minister Harry Lawley. Harry, thank you so much for taking the time. Yeah, my pleasure to be with you. So let me just kind of get a little background on this from you, just from from why this is a concern for you right now. I mean, obviously we're experiencing COVID-19, global pandemic, uh, you know, Problem is getting worse day by day here uh, across the world, but also, of course, here in Canada as well. What What is your concern right now when it comes to, you know, people completing their medical uh, or getting their medical degrees from foreign countries who are Canadian and British Columbian, uh, but not necessarily getting an opportunity to practice here uh, in the immediate future? What 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 is your concern when it comes to this issue? Yeah. Well, I've been following this uh, before as an MLA, but more so since my own son, uh, went to Warsaw University to get his degree uh, as a doctor. And uh, so obviously I've been uh, in, in touch with this whole situation. Now the issue is not about my son. Obviously he's uh, applying in other parts of Canada and most likely he'll, he, he'll get in. But it's a greater issue, especially now uh, with the coronavirus uh, that is spreading like wildfire uh, as a pandem- pandemic across the world. And you're finding that uh, uh, other countries are doing innovative things and actually loosening or relaxing their former established rules in order to get more of these trained doctors into uh, internships and medical residencies. Ireland, for instance, is, is increasing their program and wanting uh, uh, not only uh, uh, trained doctors to, to come back to Ireland, but also students uh, as well who are looking uh, uh, for residency positions uh, to, to be able to come back uh, and assist in this pandem- pandemic. And you having uh, England has done the same thing, uh, United Kingdom, where they're actually opening up, whereas before it was just uh, England-trained or United Kingdom-trained doctors uh, who would get uh, internships there. They're opening up internationally, so anybody is welcome to apply as long as uh, they uh, meet the requirements. India, for instance, has a shortage uh, of 400 to 600,000 doctors, is now building 200 new medical colleges over the next 10 years to be able to meet their own domestic demand and is actually uh, a stopping a program called NORI Certificates, whereby uh, they were saying no objection for Indian-trained doctors to get residency in the United States. They're actually really clamping down on that because they need to meet their own domestic need and their coronavirus. Quebec is another one, just uh, is now uh, asking people to apply for how they can help in this um, medical crisis. And I have to do a little bit more research on that to see if medical residencies are also opening up. But it's time, I think, for British Columbia to do the same thing. And I know it's a great thing that they recalled and asked for retired doctors to reinstate and healthcare professionals. And a few doesn't have. But, you know, most uh, doctors retire and I'm, uh, you know, over 65. 
it's because of medical reasons or health reasons that they retire. So these older doctors coming back are in that most at-risk category right now. So and I think we can uh, uh, supplement or add to the capacity where you might have a few dozen actually British Columbia uh, uh, doctors who have been trained abroad, the IMGs, who are waiting for residencies. And I think UBC, uh, the BC Medical Association, the provincial government, and the federal governments need to work together to open that to meet our demand right now in the face of this coronavirus that is spreading. Are are you at all, um, you know, surprised that that hasn't happened just because, you know, you talked a little bit here about those people who are retired doctors who are being called back to work amid the COVID-19 crisis here. Um, you know, they're over 65. They're uh, immunocompromised, potentially. They're in that older age group that is more at risk uh, to, to contract COVID-19 and, and suffer serious consequences as a result of the, the novel coronavirus. And, you know, clearly there is a need for more doctors in this country. And, and now more than ever, it feels like that's sort of being brought to the forefront when we're talking about the need for more medical professionals to help those who are impacted. Are you surprised this discussion hasn't had a little more uh, a little more legs to it or, or been a little more at the forefront, um, you know, just talking about the need to bring in new doctors and, and particularly younger doctors, and that's really what we're talking about here in this case? Well, first of all, I want to state that I am not at all being critical of uh, the, the situation in the past or the current or past government's or the federal government. That's not what it's, I'm, what I'm recommending is something very positive uh, that could be done. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's an old uh, uh, saying that necessity is the mother of all inventions. So we have a need right now. It is necessary for us to actually uh, increase our capacity as we fight the uh, COVID-19 pandemic right here in British Columbia. And I think now is the time more than ever to open it up. And in the past, I know uh, universities have passed the buck to the government saying, we're not getting enough funding, and government said we've got to watch our budgets. Well, every jurisdiction, uh, provincially and federally in Canada, ha- are running into these huge deficits, rightly so, in order to fight the coronavirus right now, right, the spread of it. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, where there's $5 billion that the D.C. government is going to be spending for fighting the virus and also to prop up the economy, it's just a few million dollars that you might be needed if that is what is needed, which is basically a, a drop of a drop of a you know in the, in the bucket to be able to take care of that need. So that argument of, of finances doesn't hold anymore, but the need is there. And uh, my own uh, doctor, uh, Dr. Don McLeod in, in Merritt, I had conversations with him and other doctors that I know, and they all are of the same opinion that uh, these new uh, doctors that are being trained uh, locally here in Canada, and also the IMGs, uh, these young people are more in tune with the pandemics. They, they, they're more in tune with the, the modern skills, the techniques, the, and the medical technologies that are available across the world, and they're rare to go. They want to help. And I think that this is a resource that's waiting for governments to call, and I think that uh, the, the B.C. government needs to work with UBC, open up uh, more residencies, for those Canadian, those British Columbian uh, kids who are fully trained doctors, but they need their residencies and they want to help. And, and I think this is the opportune time. And, uh, and I know government is busy uh, with, with, with this pandemic right now, but this is just one more thing that can, they can add to in order to increase our capacity because we have 14 sites uh, in British Columbia uh, associated with UBC where this training takes place under the supervision of doctors for for medical residents. 
and and the Royal Indiana Hospital is one of them. So in our area, we've had doctor shortages in communities like Merrill, in Princeton, Logan Lake, Hope, and all these other communities surrounding Kamloops. This would lighten the load, obviously, if you've got some medical residents that are actually stationed in these 14 sites working with the doctors in order to make, uh, uh, fight the, uh, the spread of the coronavirus and deal with patients. Um- I, I think it's also important to reiterate and re-highlight that, you know, we are talking about Canadians and British Columbians here who, who were, you know, studying abroad. They are from here. They are, uh, you know, domestic um, residents, but they, they just went and got their degree elsewhere, and, and now they're waiting to practice here in Canada. I just wanted to highlight that one more time. Um, just from your son's perspective, since he is here, one of these IMGs that is waiting to find some work and start a residency, um, what, what has he been told? Is it more difficult right now for him to find uh, a place to do his residency? You you said you're pretty confident he's going to find something, but it hasn't happened yet, and you know, it sounds like he may be being passed over for some of these uh, either doctors who are, you know, have their degree from a foreign country who are foreign doctors or, or of course, those who have a degree domestically. What, what is the reasoning behind why, um, you know, he doesn't seem to be at the front of a line when, when trying to find a residency? The reality is uh, that uh, even in terms of uh, medical training uh, for degrees uh, uh, for doctors, uh, when, you, when you have uh, Canadian institutions like UBC, they sell residency, sorry, they sell positions in training also to foreign countries, uh, students from foreign countries. And then even in residencies, that, that, that takes place. And so what ends up happening is denies not, uh, not only Canadian students that are locally trained, but also uh, Canadian doctors that are international uh, medical graduates uh, spaces. And we're losing actually fully trained Canadian doctors by the hundreds uh, to other countries like the United States. Uh, for instance, uh, my nephew, uh, who uh, went to Warsaw, Poland as well, got his residency in uh, Florida came back to Merritt and wanted to be a, a practicing here. And at that time, it was several years ago, the IHA was not very helpful uh, in, in getting uh, getting him uh, certified here to be able to do that, even though he passed all his tests. He ended up going to the United States. He's married and he's got kids and he's not coming back. And, uh, and you know, my son also grew up in Merritt, is in the same boat. But there are dozens of other uh, British Columbian uh, fully trained doctors uh, who are IMGs. And basically uh, hundreds uh, across the country, and we're losing those people because of the entrenchment that uh, that that uh, is there within uh, established universities, etc. But finances is no longer an excuse. They will add capacity, obviously, and you know they get paid minimal uh, residents. Uh, they get paid minimal, but they give a full time uh, their full time to uh, being doctors uh, under the supervision of others, uh, which basically frees up other doctors to be able to fight the coronavirus, if not, you know, these uh, uh, IMGs. And I think it's, it's the time to be able to, to do that right now to say, look, whether you are a Canadian trained Canadian doctor or you're trained internationally, but you come back to Canada, they ought to be treated on an equal footing. But at the same time, now is the time to open up. Ireland's doing it. England's doing it. India's doing it. Quebec has started doing it. And I think it, it, because there is a need right now, this is the opportune time to do it. And I think, you know, the, some of the uh, bureaucratic hurdles that are sometimes used as an excuse, the legislation and regulations. Well, governments are moving heaven and earth in order to basically change the legislation and the regulations to push multi-billions of dollars out to not only fight the coronavirus right now, but also to prop up the economy uh, in our country and across other countries. 
the same thing can be done. And like I said, necessity is the mother of all inventions, and we have a need, and I know these governments can do that. So my plea uh, to the Premier and to Minister Dix and the government and also to the Prime Minister is this is the time to do it. Other jurisdictions are doing it. There's no reason why we can't do it. Uh, New York, for instance, uh, not only New York University, but state, but they're asking uh, their medical students who are graduating this year to graduate early so they they want to uh, get them into, as long as they qualify, get them into these positions as, uh, as uh, internships uh, to fight the coronavirus there in, in, in New York right now. So jurisdictions across the world are responding. So I think what needs to happen is, is for provincial governments, BC here in particular, and also the Canadian government, to be proactive in the face of this coronavirus threat rather than be reactive when the situation gets out of control. And I think the time is now to be able to do this. This is the opportune time to do it. Do you, uh, just out of curiosity here, do you have a fear at all uh, when it comes to this issue, right? We have these IMGs, these international medical graduates who are now back in Canada waiting for a, uh, a position to open up so they can begin their residency and become a, a medical doctor here in Canada. Do you have a fear that if, you know, this process doesn't become a little bit easier during this particular time, right, when we're talking about a time of crisis, for them to get involved and be a part of this solution to coronavirus, do you have a fear that they'll get these these IMGs will get scooped up by other countries and, and then they may not ever want to come back to Canada, not because they don't like Canada, but because once they start practicing and start working, you know, it's harder to leave. So do you have a fear that, you know, we have a bunch of qualified doctors that are here, that if we don't take advantage of them while they are here, they, they might be gone before we know it? Well, it's not a fear. It's a reality. That's what's happening is because there are not enough physicians uh, made available uh, in uh, Canada and British Columbia. And we have a shortage, a big shortage of doctors uh, in, in British Columbia right now, especially since baby boomer doctors uh, have been and will be retiring over the next 10 to 15 years. So it, we need to meet that demand. So it's already happening. You know, my nephew's gone. I know some others that have gone as well, uh, uh, you know, uh, kids of uh, friends and relatives that are gone abroad now. And they're going to continue to do that, and it, is, it becomes a brain drain. And then the reality is these... Uh, um, uh, uh, Canadian students who went abroad to get their medical degrees. They did it because there weren't enough spaces available in Canada. But they're fully trained and come back to Canada. They didn't go elsewhere to go find residencies or to work. They're coming back to Canada because they're Canadians and they want to help, uh, you know, patients in Canada. And for British Columbia, you know, for, for people like my nephew and, and my son, and many other, uh, uh, you know, fully trained doctors that are AMGs, they want to do the same thing. They want to be in British Columbia. They want to be in Canada. They don't want to go to the United States or they don't want to go elsewhere. But out of necessity, they're forced to leave. And I think this is the opportune time to not only open up residencies for these IMGs, but once they, you know, they've completed all their requirements to, to be able to, uh, you know, make positions available in order to get rid of that backlog of the shortage of doctors that is already here, especially in rural British Columbia and rural Canada. But it's also a big issue in urban Canada because uh, even there, uh, there are so many tens of thousands of people in the lower mainland who do not have a family doctor. So what do they do? They go to these walk-in clinics and, and these patients are going into the ER and hospitals to get their health care 
rather than the care of a family doctor that they could call their own. Well, Harry, uh, I think that's uh, kind of a good point to wrap up on here. Um, you know, we could probably talk about this for another half an hour, but uh, unfortunately we don't have that much time to uh, to get all that in. But I really appreciate you taking the time and bringing this issue to my attention. Uh, I think it's a, it's a really interesting conversation that, that probably should be had, and, and a, a time when we're dealing with a global pandemic is probably a, an appropriate time to think about this, although maybe it should have been thought of prior to, but, um, you know, better late than never. That was Harry Lolly, former MLA for Yale Lillouette and former BC Transportation Minister. Let's take a quick break here, and I'll be, we'll be and I'll be back with more Jeff Andrea show after this. So please stick around. Your opinion, call or text two five zero three seven four five three four five. Find us on Facebook or on Twitter at Radio NL News. This is Jeff Andreas on RadioNL.com. Welcome back in to the Jeff Andreas Show here on Monday, March 30th. Of course, as we deal with COVID-19, the sporting world has essentially come to a complete standstill. The 2020 Summer Olympics were postponed, and they have now been rescheduled for July 23rd through August 8th, 2021. While most athletes, of course, are disappointed by the date change, it does allow for those who perhaps, you know, may have been injured and unable to attend they now have the chance to get healthy and prepare for next year. Although the opposite is also likely to most definitely be true when the games do roll around next year. Someone who is healthy now likely won't be healthy this time next year. And then, of course, that will be a bit of a buzzkill for those particular individuals. Now, other sports, uh, you know, are still trying to have some kind of activity. The National Football League has essentially been pretending that there's nothing going on around the world. Uh, NFL News hits my phone all the time recently with trades and free agency and uh, today, there was a talk more about the, uh, the upcoming NFL draft, an internal memo from NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell, which he sent to all 32 teams, is saying that the league's draft will go on as scheduled for April 23rd to the 25th. Uh, here's ESPN senior writer Jeremy Fowler, who's saying that teams are working through different options to accommodate for a remote draft. People around the league I've spoken to have no idea what to expect. You know, they're hoping that they can at least get a few essential people in one room, like a mini war room with a head coach, GM, and owner. But there's not even a guarantee of that right now. So teams are prepared, prepared to do everything remotely if they have to with Zoom technologies and everything else. They're looking into all options. So that is going to look a little bit more different than normal. But as I'm sure many others out there are also feeling... Like a little piece of life is missing without sports? Well, this does give us something to talk about. I could imagine, or I, honestly, I couldn't imagine being a sportscaster or a sports radio host uh, right at this time. Like, what the heck are you even talking about right now? Are they talking about virtual racing? Because apparently, with professional sports on hold for COVID-19, several NASCAR drivers have been competing in virtual racing using iRacing, which is a hyper-accurate driving simulation software program. Former professional driver Dale Earnhardt Jr. participated in this weekend's event, and he says, like everyone, the virus has affected his everyday life, and so now he's donating unused N95 masks to hospitals that need them. Our race team has, uh, we have a paint booth. Um, those guys wear the, the, the N95 masks. We took all our masks and donated them to the Lake Norman uh, Regional Hospital here. I'm sure there are a lot of companies in the area, especially race teams, that have a lot of that um you know, inventory and have been donating it, donating that locally. There you go. Sports fans can watch some virtual racing. You can watch the upcoming NFL draft at the end of April. And, uh, and, you know, we can thank guys like Dale Earnhardt Jr. who are helping our medical professionals by donating what they can to support those on the front line. Well, 
On that happy note, I think it's about time to wrap things up. If you have any burning questions or a subject you want me to talk more about, you can uh, just email me, jandreas at stingray.com, or hit me up on Twitter at jeffrey underscore andreas. Well, I want to thank all my guests for joining me, and of course a big thank you to all of you for listening. And remember, whether you join me for a short while or a long while, just know we enjoyed our time. While it lasted, enjoy the rest of your Monday. I'll be back here tomorrow at 9.